Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Ladies, you know that man in your life with the big beautiful beard? Or the one trying to grow a beard even if it's just a little stubble? Well, what you might not know is that the skin underneath all that face fur can get dried out and super itchy, causing scratching that leads to flaking, and if there's anything worse than head dandruff, it's beard dandruff. That's why we've teamed up with thebeardstruggle.com. They know what goes into having a big glorious beard, hence the name. And they've created some of the best products in the market to help the man in your life tame those majestic chin locks and soothe the skin underneath. Be it the day and night oils, which keep the beard soft and the skin moisturized, and they smell great by the way, or the beard straightener that calms those extra curly face hairs and makes that beard look fuller and healthier. Kevin uses these products and his beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. And I, I really enjoy playing with the beard now. Thebeardstruggle.com uses 100% all-natural ingredients. They never test on animals and have a 90-day money-back guarantee. All you have to do is go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on the link in the show notes. And don't forget to use our exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, for 15% off at checkout. That's audio 15 for 15% off your entire order. Go now. This is not a visual format. People can't see. Well, good, because I would scare them. Talking is usually what we do. Welcome to week two of Flannery O'Connor. All right. Hey, I didn't even have to tell you to do it. This is open a fucking book. <laughs> I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. How is everybody? Um, do, I mean, do we have anything to talk about? Are we going to do any witty banner before we get into it, or should we just fucking get into it? Let's just fucking get into it. All right. Shut up! <laughs> Again, we are in the house, so the dog is being weird. Lay down, buddy. Oh, he's a good boy. Yeah, he's a good boy. All right, so when we last left, he's a uh, shithead. <laughs> Flannery was headed to Iowa. So in the fall of 1945, Mary walked into the office of Paul Engel, the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop at U of I. After a moment, she finally spoke. She kind of stood there. She, like, knocked, and he told her to come in. She just kind of stood there quietly, just doing what our type of people do, which is say nothing until we're asked to say something. Our type of people? Yeah, people who don't like to talk. Oh, introverts? <laughs> something like that, yeah. Uh, but after a moment, she finally did speak, and because of her harsh southern dialect and his Midwestern ears, he didn't understand a word of what she said. Yeah, that's usually how it goes. A lot of times. Um, he asked her to repeat it. After a second time of not understanding her, he handed her a piece of paper and she wrote on it. My name is Flannery O'Connor. I am not a journalist. Can I come to the writer's workshop? He told her to drop off some of her writings and she would be considered. The next day, after she sent in a few stories, he immediately accepted her to the workshop, both the name of Engel's writing class and of his of his. MFA graduate writing program. 
She decided almost from day one in Iowa to drop the MFOC or the MF O'Connor and be known as Flannery O'Connor. From this point on, she will no longer be called Mary unless she is at home. and Because Regina still calls her Mary Flannery. Because that's what mothers do. Yes. They use your first and middle name. Kind of like how I hate being called Steph, and yet there are very few people I allow to call me Steph. I call you Steph every once in a while. And you are one of the very few I allow. Well, but, I would help, I would hope, since I married you and all. But I prefer to be called Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, most in Iowa knew her as Flannery, and she did this with her mother's permission. She actually asked her mom if it was okay if she was only known as Flannery instead of Mary Flannery. That's not I didn't ask my mom, my egg donor, for permission for anything. Well, this is a different type of relationship. Now, not long after she arrived in Iowa City, she quickly became homesick, but she found a surrogate home, not at the dorms or with friends, but two blocks from where she now lived at the St. Mary's Catholic Church. Uh, the church pastor, Monsignor Carl Bernstein, gave daily masses at 6.30 and 7.30 a.m., and Flannery went almost every morning, and in true Mary style said, quote, I went there three years and never knew a soul in that congregation or any of the priests, but it was not necessary. As soon as I went in the door, I was at home. Three years didn't 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 know a single person. I'll just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> now at school she wrote a short story called Biography for her magazine writing class and took a poli sci in an advertising class, but she was still holding on to hope that she would become a professional cartoonist. Applying some of her work to the art department to get into the advanced drawing and individual instruction classes. But once she went to Paul Engel's office, she unknowingly changed the direction of the rest of her life. He had enrolled her in two of his classes, Understanding Fiction and Writer's Workshop. The classes were nothing more than a dozen or so chairs put in a semicircle around a reading desk, and each meeting consisted of readers of reading manuscripts by usually two students. The, two, the students would criticize each other's work and occasionally the teachers or the teacher would criticize their work. Everybody was criticizing everybody's work. That's pretty much the whole thing is you got better by um, participation. Yeah, that seems really neat. Now, once there was a visit from poet John Crow Ransom, founder and editor of the Kenyan Review, Ransom chose one of Flannery's stories to read in the class. In the story, there was dialogue between poor whites and blacks in the South, and when Ransom came to the N-word, he refused to say it aloud, instead saying Negro. Flannery complained, quote, It did spoil the story. The people I was writing about would never use any other word. Which, if she's writing about people in the South in the 1950s, there's a good chance that no, they wouldn't use the word Negro. They'd use the other word. Yeah. Because, you know, Mark Twain got the same shit for using that word over and over. But at that time, going down the Mississippi River, that's the word that would have been used. Unfortunately. Of Obviously, unfortunately. But if you're writing in, you know, the colloquialism, that is the word that is getting used. Yes, true. Now, after returning from Georgia after Christmas break for the new semester, 
She wrote a new story based on Caroline Gordon's Old Red. In the Old Red, an old southern gentleman finds a symbol for his life in a red fox. In her story, she at the time called the Geranium, a southerner, Old Dudley, living in a tentament apartment in New York City, finds a symbol for his homesickness in a potted red geranium. She said she couldn't write about her homesickness, her homesickness, so she wrote about his. The original ending had the pot falling off of the window sill, and instead of just mourning the loss of the plant, he goes out to get it. A tenant apartment in New York City is a high rise. Right. His daughter asking him, where are you going? And him responding, after that damn geranium. And he leapt to his death. Oh. Instead of, you know, taking an elevator. No, he he went after the geranium. Through the window. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it left the other writers in the class dumbfounded. There are people standing up going, that would never happen. That would never happen. But, well, it did. It would happen. It probably has happened. This is one of those where she got re- to reading it and all the guys in the class started groaning because they couldn't understand a word of what she was saying. So she picked another guy out of class who also had kind of a southern accent, but not a deep south small town Georgia accent to read it. And everybody was just kind of flabbergasted as a word we've used on this podcast before about she sent a man out a window to catch a plant. A fellow workshop student, Norma Hodges, said, quote, the only, the only day I felt she fell flat on her face was when she tried to write about a boy and girl situation. It wasn't her thing. Engel tried to help her with her awkwardness with writing about sex or romance, and when he brought it up in the corridor outside class, she quickly told him, quote, Oh, no, don't. Not here. So they went outside, across the street, parking lot, Got into his car so nobody could hear him talk. <laughs> wow. I, well, I told you on the, the first episode, she's very uncomfortable talking about this type of stuff. And even more uncomfortable getting advice about how, about how to address it. I mean, I was very uncomfortable about it, too. And I... But, I mean, this seems extreme. Yeah. Well, that March, Flannery received word that the geranium had been accepted for publication in the summer issue of Accent Magazine, so she was now officially published. Now, she had been put in the college papers back at GSCW, but that doesn't really count, I don't think, as being officially published, because anybody can get something published in a you know college magazine if you go to the college. This is a real, actual magazine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> One of her instructors, Paul Horgan, gave out the advice to set aside a number of hours daily for writing. Same time, same place. I believe he said that, his, uh, I don't remember the times he wrote, but I believe he had a specific tree that he would go sit underneath every day and write for a specific amount of time. So it was, it was find a place where you're comfortable, find a place where... Uh, you're alone or where the inspiration comes to you the, ex- the same amount of hours a day. Don't go over them. Don't go under them. You write for this amount of time. And this would become her lifelong regimen for getting her work on paper. 
At the start of her second year in September 1946, she was living, living with a few women, her favorite of whom was named Barbara Tunicliffe. Uh, they were kindred spirits. They would walk around Iowa City actively avoiding any parties or get-togethers. Tuna cliff. <laughs> well, it, it could be pronounced differently. It, it, it looks like tune e cliff, not tuna cliff, tune e cliff. Tuna cliff. <laughs> <laughs> but most of what Barbara got came from the other side of a closed door. Flannery had set up a typewriter on a small desk in a small room with no curtains on the windows, a bare bulb hanging from a long cord from the ceiling, and a box of vanilla wafers that she ate while she wrote because she didn't smoke. Gotta do something. Yeah, and, you know, giving yourself a little treat once you... As a reward for meeting the well, goals. Well, no, the way they put it is she it was like she just she'd grab a wafer and while in between like sessions of typing while she's thinking, she'd just sit there and like nibble on it. Like a mouse or a squirrel. Well oh, a squirrel okay. just shoves everything into their mouth. So like a mouse, she'd just nibble on it and then she'd go back to typing. And then when she was done typing for a minute, she'd go back to nibbling on it. Kind of a nerve I think more of a nervous, anxious type. Like I sit here and and I'll snack while I'm typing shit out for the show, too, even though I'm not hungry half the time. Just for something to do while I'm thinking. Okay. 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 Uh, this is where she would spend most of her time, and if she wasn't writing, she was reading. When Barbara asked Flannery why she worked so hard on her writing, she simply replied, quote, had to. This is where she would write nowhere else, same time, every day least for a while. And by the fall of 1946, the workshop had grown to about 35 members with the return of servicemen from World War II enrolling in the class, presumably to write about their time in the war. Obviously. If, well, if, yeah. if, if for anything, write about what you know. Write about what you know, and for anything, just to get it off their chest because of it was fucking World War II. It, right. It wasn't like a walk in the park. Flannery didn't write about the war. You remember f the first episode she had said that if you want to make a long book, write about the war. Like Gone with the Wind. Different war, but still. Yes. That wasn't her thing. But she did write about other issues of the time in a way that further complicates the question on whether she was racist or just a product of her upbringing. So the story was called The Barber. Now, it's based off the real-life story of a married couple opening a barber shop near the university so black students didn't have to drive almost a half an hour away to simply get a haircut, uh, including the only black member of the workshop, Herb Nipson, who later became editor of Ebony Magazine. Oh. So good for him. Now, the barber revolves around Joe's Barber Shop in Dilton. It's a made-up college town in the South and a liberal college professor named Raber that goes to the shop three times to argue with the conservative supporters of a racist candidate named Hawkson. Now, Raber comes off more of a joke than a hero, and, in many, of the, and many in the workshop thought that she was showing too much of her, quote, Southern attitude. So yeah. it was... It was, it was at the end of it, it it's it's against the whole conservative racist side of everything and, and Raber's supposed to be a hero, but the way he's kind of portrayed in it, it's he's not. He's just kind of a, a 
joke. Like he's going in complaining and, and nothing really comes of it. That's the most of it. Uh, but in actuality, her personal beliefs were much more progressive while she was in Iowa than most back in Georgia. Writing to a friend a few years later, quote, I see I should ride the bus more often. I used to when I went to school in Iowa as I rode the train from Atlanta and a bus from Emville, but no more. Once I heard the bus, once I heard the driver say to the rear occupants, all right, all you stovepipe blondes, get on back there. At which moment I became an integrationist. It's very, very progressive of her. Yeah. And when she read the barber in the workshop and one of her classmates complimented her dignified, respectful portrayal of a black servant, she replied, quote, no, that's just the way he was. So it's like, I didn't, I didn't write him that way. That's just the way he was. And that's how he, how he's put down. Like the character was a real person. It's a good way to think of it. Like when you're, when you're writing, just. It's the analogy I brought up a, a few times, like Stephen King. He's even. He's even said, and it's a big part of the the Dark Tower series, is that he didn't know what was going to, he didn't know what any of the characters were going to do until they did it. So these characters have, for a lot of authors, these characters have their own personalities coming out of the box, and, and there's nothing they can do to change it. Right. Uh, she also, however, didn't shy away from, you know, that that one word, uh, telling the wife of a friend, quote, Mama and me got a point that drives us around. <sighs> so it, it complicates things. It So, so far, you're not seeing a lot of, like, her racist southern side come out, except for the use of that one word. So the question, again, we'll both address it at the end of next episode, is she racist or is that just something that she heard so much growing up that that's, that's what she, how she knows how to call them. She doesn't see the disrespect in it. She just sees that that's how they're called. That's what black people are called down there. So that's just what she uses. I heard it a lot in the South. I imagine you did. It's one of the reasons you don't like the South all that much. I hated the South and it pissed me off a lot. But then even in the Midwest, I heard it a lot. Yeah, we hear quite a bit here and then i you know i hear it a lot from black people too but they're again that's they can say it it was it was a it was a, a word used to insult them for years and years and years and they took they took it and they use it for themselves and that's their right we yeah you know. but then i from being friends with black people you know, being friends with them. Some say putting the ER on it makes it racist. Putting an A on it at the end makes it not racist. I don't know. But I... Go ahead. most white people are smart enough not to say that in the vicinity of a... I don't know if I'd go as far as say most, but... And I'm not even saying it's a smart thing not to say it. I don't, I don't use it when there's... Right. Nobody well, don't say it it's, at all. But. Uh, most, I've, I would like to think that a lot of people just in general have enough respect to not use it because of everything that goes behind that. I also don't use terms for a lot of other races and nationalities. Well, I mean, I'm with, uh, not Dante, what's his name? Fuck. From Clerks 2. Oh, I don't know. You'd. 
you you know more about that. I've, I've seen Clerks do a few times. But I don't really remember the characters so much. And the giant silent Bob. Randall. Randall. Okay, okay. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Porch monkey. We're taking it back. No, we're not taking it back. <laughs> and you should feel horrible for just saying it. No, like kids playing on the porch. <laughs> but that's not what that means, and you know it. That's not what that means. That's not what that that phrase means. I didn't know that that was a derogatory term until I watched that movie. Yeah, I, I had never heard the term until I'd watched that movie because I never lived in the South. I always lived Even here. when I lived in the South, I never heard them called that. Yeah, I've never heard that. I've heard, but in the construction business that I was in for many years and then in the steel business that I was in for many years, I heard a lot of terms for a lot of nationalities that and races that I don't use because they're extremely offensive. I'm not going to say them on here either. Just it's a it's a respect thing. So the question is, do you you know and and kind of it's to each their own if you view her as racist or not. And again, we'll get to it at the end of the ep- at the end of the next episode and give our opinions. But is it a racist thing or is it just a poorly brought up thing? Perhaps both. Maybe. Now she started to finally bring her faith into stories a little more in her own way. Uh, she wrote. The Turkey, a story about a boy that catches, in quotes, an already shot dead turkey in a ditch and sees it as a sign from God for his love and approval. (laughs) Then the turkey is stolen by some other kids and his faith was mixed with terror. Quote, he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him. She uses now she so she's an avid Catholic. She she loves the faith. She loves going to mass. Um, it really it really anchors her down, which is fine. And she puts it in a lot of her stories going forward. But she's um, she's satirical about it a lot. She pokes fun at a lot of shit. Kind of like Kevin Smith with his Catholicism because he grew up Catholic as well. Yeah, and- but she stays in it. He doesn't. True. He got out of it. She doesn't. She stays in it till the day she dies. She's avid about it. But she still she still pokes fun at the whole idea of it. I mean, what's to not poke fun at? It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> well, I think they're all ridiculous, but that's not what this show's about. Now, around Christmas, she started work on another story that would be the building blocks for a full-blown novel sometime in the future. The Train, about Hazel Wickers, a 19-year-old country boy returning south after the war. The inspiration for the story came from her train ride home for the holidays. She noticed the Tennessee boy in uniform who was bothering the porter about the berths, or beds on the train, and how they were made up, and the porter porter seeming to not give a shit. And I listened to the first chapter of what will become, this will become wise blood, spoiler alert, and, uh, yeah, the whole time he's on the train and he's complaining to the porter about the f- how the beds are fucking made up. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting book. Not my job. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> now, she described the Dearborn Station in Chicago from her own experiences. Quote, I sat down next to a colored woman in the waiting room at the Dearborn Street Station in Chicago once. She was eating grapes and asked me to have some, but I declined. She was very talkative and kept talking and eating grapes. Finally, she asked me where I was from, and I said, Georgia. She spit the mouthful of grape seeds out on the floor and said, My God, and got up and left. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to do that to someone someday. (laughs) 
where are you where are you from seattle my god and walk away more like you know like tampa bay because yeah i hate tom brady (laughs) (laughs) for no reason and she was also able to give descriptions of things like war hospitals from the stories she heard from the vets in her class obviously something she would have no firsthand knowledge of but she listened to what they said in class and she described that in the story. Now, by the time she returned to Iowa City in 1947, she was finishing the train as the last of six stories in her thesis collection for her MFA degree. She was also adapting it as the first chapter of a novel. The most ambitious thing Flannery had attempted in writing so far, mainly because of the announcement of Reinhardt Publishers awarding a $750 advance for a novel to a workshop student in May, and another $750 advance upon acceptance of publishing. Paul Engel had already sent two of her stories to John Selby, the Reinhardt editor in charge of the prize. For help with writing the outline, she acquired the aid of Andrew Little, a visiting instructor, Vanderbilt graduate, former Broadway actor, and fellow Southerner. Flannery saw him as sort of a literary older brother, and he would help her greatly on a scene involving Hazel and a prostitute in the second chapter of the novel. Quote, She would put a man in bed with a woman, and I would say, Now, Flannery, it's not done quite that way, and we talk a little bit about it, but she couldn't face up to it, so she'd put a hat on his head and make him a comic figure. Wow. Many of the other writers were irritated about the relationship between the two. Little recognized this and said, quote, She was a lovely girl, but scared the boys to death with her irony. And he would make things worse by telling anyone that would listen, and some that wouldn't, about her natural talent. Quote, Why she could just walk by a pool room and know exactly what's happening by the smell. He, he really liked to like dig it into people about how much better she was than he, they were. Yeah. By early May of 1947, Flannery had the manuscript nearly finished, and she started filling applications for teacher's jobs, just in case she didn't get the advance from Reinhardt. She got Barbara to type her thesis project, The Geranium, a collection of short stories, and she dedicated it to Paul Engel. And then, in the last week of May, she got the news. She had won the Reinhardt Award, and Paul had been able to arrange a teaching assistant job for the next year. Fuck, everything's coming together. I think about that that meme um, with the guy from... Uh, oh, the one where David Spade pays, plays the prince who turns into a llama. The cartoon. Oh, the Emperor's New Groove. Emperor's New Groove. The, the character that um, Patrick Warburton plays. The big guy. Yeah. Itty, uh, bitty, I can't remember his name. But there's a, there's a meme where he's just kind of glant. He's just kind of evil staring off to the distance. It's all coming together. I forgot his name. Yeah. I'm sure somebody out there screaming at their radio right now or at gronk their phone. Or gonk. Gonk? Gonk. I don't know. It's not gronk. <laughs> Is it gronk? I don't know. Now, that summer, she went back to Andalusia. Uh, the year before, Flannery had sat next to a descendant of the Hawkins family. It is gronk. Of the Hawkins family, the original owners of the farm, on a bus ride through Atlanta, and she was told of the original name. Flannery convinced Regina to rename the farm from Sorrel Farms back to Andalusia. 
Now, back at the university in the fall, she began a friendship with Robbie McCulley, whom Angle had brought on as a student and instructor, instructor to teach a course in Rome, Roman in Russian literature. The two began to date. Date is a word that's thrown around a lot in this book. It's a word that they use a lot, but none of these dates are dates. They're like friends hanging out. Friend zone? I wouldn't even say friend zone. It's just they're just friends and they're hanging out, but for some reason they call them dates. I mean, technically, if you're hanging out, it's still a date. Because she only really dates one guy who we'll get to in the next episode, but they throw date around a lot. Because it's still a date, like... If you're going to go hang out with your, your girlfriend, that's still a date. I, But they're not boyfriend and girlfriend. They're friends. No, I'm saying, like, if I were to go hang out with a girlfriend, it's a date. If I was going to go hang out with your mom, that's a date. Yeah, but, I mean, date these days is a very specific meaning, I think. And I don't see these as dates. I just see these as, as hangouts. But, again, this was in the 40s, so they had different, you know, you say date, it could mean a lot of other things. Uh, Macaulay was sure to say many years later that the relationship was not romantic. He was actually engaged to someone named Anne Draper at the time, and Flannery knew. So this was all purely just, again, Friendship. friends hanging out. Now, their dates were that just them you know, walking around, talking, reading. Uh, they saw each other more as soulmates, which is, again, kind of weird that you see your soulmate as a friend and not somebody you're going to be intimate with. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be intimate with your soulmate. I guess. I don't believe in soulmates to begin with, so. I mean, because, like, Orange Cassidy is my spirit animal. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. No, he's not. Yes, he he represents all that I love, and that's laziness. (laughs) You don't love to be lazy, though. You hate being lazy. You just can't get up and do shit because you're disabled. But I love it now. Okay. You say so. Now, now Macaulay would introduce Flannery to Walter and Jane Sullivan, who loved listening to her stories from the South about backwards walking chickens and her Catholic upbringing. Uh, Macaulay also introduced her to Robert Lowell, who would br- who was brought in to give poetry readings and critique workshop poems. Lowell had lived in the summer of 1973 in the backyard of poet Alan Tate and his wife, Carolyn Gordon, who wrote the old red that the geranium was based on uh, down in Tennessee. Now, Lowell was treated like a... You're the only 10 I see. Yeah, when you talk that far away from the microphone, nobody can hear you. You're the only 10 I see. Okay. Lowell was treated like a celebrity, chain-smoking, curly-haired, and unruly. People were somewhat drawn to the the 30-year-old poet. Now, the train came out in the Swanee Review in April. The quarterly from Tennessee's University of the South was edited by both Little and Alan Tate. So it's just one big circle of poets kind of helping everybody out. Uh, Her and her friend Gene Williams went to the City Park Zoo by the Iowa River. Uh, Even though the inspiration for the City Forest Park Zoo and Wise Blood was from the Atlanta Zoo, Flannery got the idea for her character Enoch's fixation on a cage of two black bears sitting and facing each other like two matrons having tea from this zoo. Uh, there was cages. All, I mean, there were 
dirty mangly fucking cages and they had two black bears in there that just kind of sat there and stared at each other because they were so bored because they're just in a little black cage and they had like raccoons and cages and shit like that not a very good zoo from the sound of it but inspiration comes that's from work. terrible inspiration comes from uh, mid-February 1948, workshop instructor Paul Griffith told Engel that Flannery's chapters were ready to go. Then, Hansford Martin, another instructor, showed irritation when he told Engel that Flannery wouldn't stop rewriting the first chapter. This is something you're going to see about Mary. With like her short stories, she could pop them out real quick. But with this fucking novel, she cannot leave shit alone. Everything can always be tweaked. And it's one of those things where you write something... And then you decide you want to change something, so you rewrite it, and then you rewrite that, and then you rewrite that. Now, all of a sudden, you know what's going on, but other people don't quite understand because they don't have the, they don't have the perception from what it used to be. Right. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, there's been a lot of times when I'm typing out shit for the show, writing scripts, and I'll be like, no, I'll take that out and just put this in. No, I'll take that out and I'll just put this in to make it a little shorter. And then I go back and I read it, and nobody's going to understand what the fuck I'm saying because I took out important parts that I didn't think was important at the time because I had already read it. So. Like, I've got the biscuits. No, not like that. It's nothing like that. I bet you didn't think I was going to try that. I figured you were going to bring it up at some point. (laughs) I've er been saying it all week. (laughs) I'm going to have a pin made up says I got biscuits. I've got the biscuits. We're going to sell them on the. We're going to sell them on Patreon. Now, in early drafts of the book, Hazel had a sister named Ruby Hill who ends up pregnant, living in a boarding house, and wants to have an abortion. The subplot would be published as Woman on the Stairs the next year in Tomorrow Magazine, and eventually revised as. A Stroke of Good Fortune. A Ruby in the story is complaining about the waistband of her skirt being too tight and uncomfortable and unable to carry the groceries up the flight of stairs in her apartment building. And by the time she gets to the top, her worst fears come bursting through that it isn't simple weight gain, but that she's pregnant. So that's pretty much the whole story is just this w- woman inside her own head walking up a flight of stairs. Coming to the realization that she's pregnant and not yeah. fat. Yeah. Now, that spring, Paul Griffith had suggested applying for a summer residency at the Yaddo Artist Colony in in Saratoga Springs, New York. Have you ever heard of Yaddo? I don't think so. I had never heard about it until now either. And for our next series that we'll be doing in February, this artist colony gets brought up again to another huge author. So I think it's going to be one of those that you never hear of it. And then all of a sudden, you hear about it all the time. Kind of like... William S. fucking Burroughs. And uh, what was that? I was watching Masterminds the other day, and I texted you a question. Oh, Gonzo. Yeah. Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's like, all this shit is just coming up all over the place now. Uh, Paul Griffith even helped her get recommendations to get in. She was accepted, and in April, she packed up for a trip that would help shape her life and career. Now, Yaddo is located on the outskirts of Saratoga Springs near the Anirondacks in upstate New York, was opened for creative business since 1926 by Katerina Trask, a center for, quote, creating, creating, creating. Artists, authors, composers, and philosophers like Langston Hughes, Delmore Schwartz, Hannah Ardent, Jean Stafford, 
Virgil Thompson, and our good friend from our William S. Burroughs series, Paul Bowles. You remember Paul Bowles? Yes. Yeah. They all spent he time bowls. they all spent time writing and pontificating there. In 1946, Truman Capote wrote his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, our good friend Truman from our uh, Harper Lee series. Yes. Who we will obviously cover at some point. But the most famous and most intriguing to Flannery would have been Edgar Allan Poe, who was rumored to have written The Raven on a lower lake during a visit to the property in the 1840s before it was Yaddo. Her dog's being weird. Figured Edgar Allan Poe writing The Raven would get a bigger reaction out of you. No, I I love it. If if I mean, you're not going to like this, but if I was alive back then, I would have been banging Poe. I doubt it. Now, Flannery <laughs> arrived in June for a two-month residency on the upper floor of the mansion with 23 other guests, including two composers, six painters, and 15 writers. The retreat, the retreat was ran almost like a convent by Elizabeth Ames, a widowed school teacher from Minnesota, say Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> who presume who presumably everyone was scared of. Flannery took this Fuck you. Flannery took to this strict regimen, suddenly finding herself with others that like to work all the time. I know one of our listeners is getting a big kick out of that right now. After breakfast, guests were handed a black tin workman's lunchbox and thermos and set off to their studios. If the kitchen staff liked you, you could get an extra raw carrot. (laughs) (laughs) Flannery would have rather worked in her room, but, quote, they seem to think it proper you go to a studio. There was a no visiting or talking rule from 9 to 4, and invited guests were restricted to the hours of 4 to 10 at night. Flannery was fairly happy. No talking and barely any guests. Excellent. Yes. An introvert's dream. Mm -hmm. She took walks around the lakes and had constant companions. She called a, quote, studio squirrel, as well as some chipmunks and a large, important-looking woodchuck. <laughs> How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Imagine she just looks over and be like, you seem like you should be here. <laughs> now, the downside of Yato was, quote, the arty pose she thought some of the other guests ado- adopted. Quote, at the breakfast table, they talked about secanol and barbiturates, and now maybe it's marijuana. You survive in this atmosphere by minding your own business and by having plenty of your own business to mind, and by not being afraid to be different from the rest of them. I've had both of those today. Secanol and barbiturates? Barbiturates and marijuana. Edibles? Mm-hmm. Mm. The barbiturates and my migraine pill. Yeah. Now, they had a bunch of wild parties. Flannery went to a couple, but always made sure to leave before they started breaking things. Flannery decided that the help was more her speed than the guests, and she started making friends with them instead, like Jim and Nellie Shannon, the Irish caretaker and head cook, with their three kids that lived in the East House on the property. Jim Jr. said, quote, Dad had been a rag picker on the docks until he got in a brawl and someone put a bale hook in his skull, so he moved upstate. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Bail hooks are huge. Uh, sharp, too. Yeah. Doesn't say how far in it goes. Well, but I mean, sometimes they get dull. It depends on if they kept them sharp. Yeah. Ooh. But 
that happened, so they moved upstate. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do what you got to do. I mean, less violence, I suppose. It had to have been dull, otherwise, it would have gone through the skull into the brain. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, but the docks are kind of a dangerous place, and I can't imagine upstate New York is. So, no, it's like farm country up there, I think. Farm country and mountain, kind of hilly and mountainy, and yeah, that's where that 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 chick that plays with poop and makes stuff. <laughs> that's yes, that's where the chick who plays with poop and makes shit out of it, makes shit out of shit. Yeah, yeah. Now each Sunday morning, she would drive with them to St. Clement's Church on Lake Avenue in Saratoga Springs. Flannery did make one close friend in these two months, Elizabeth Fenwick who just so happened to also be writing a novel for John Selby at Reinhardt. Another connection she made was with Paul Moore. Now, this was important because he recommended his literary agent, Elizabeth McKee. And Flannery wrote to McKee on June 19th to inquire for her services and apologize for being a, quote, very slow worker. And McKee responded by telling her that her work sounded interesting and not to worry about the speed at which she writes. And they ended up ironing out terms for a working relationship. And to all accounts, McKee was loyal and helped her immensely. She's going to be, anytime I say that she sent shit to her agent, that's who it is. Because she's the agent throughout the rest of her life. And Me and McKee? Yeah. But not Bobby? McKee and me. Me and Bobby McKee? Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not Bobby. I don't think it's McKee. It's McGee. I know. I was being funny. (laughs) Is that what that was? Fuck you! (laughs) Just because Flannery didn't make many close friends didn't mean that people weren't taken by her talent and demeanor, like Edward Maisel, who used to take her on walks and introduce her to people in the city. Edward went to bat for Flannery with Mrs. Ames through notes, since speaking wasn't allowed most of the day. Quote, By the way, have you gotten to know Flannery O'Connor at all? Probably not, because she's so very silent and withdrawn and needs bringing out. But I have been on several evening walks with her and find her immensely serious, with a sharp sense of humor, a very devout Catholic, 13th century, she does describe herself. I think you would enjoy her, Elizabeth. And it worked. On July 26th, just before Flannery was set to leave, Mrs. Ames sent her a note inviting her to return to stay until the end of the year, and possibly longer if she liked. Said in there that uh, her only fee for staying was that she had to sweep the carpet in the hallway like once a week or some shit like that damn yeah after she returned to milledgeville flannery wrote back quote were it not for my mother i could easily resolve not to see georgia again fuck yeah (laughs) now the biggest excitement on her this this you're gonna hate it first, and then it's you're gonna love now the biggest excitement on her home on her visit home was an August 12th rally of 350 Klan members on the steps of the Milledgeville Courthouse, which she reported to Ames, quote, It's too hot to burn a fiery cross, so they bring a portable one made of red electric light bulbs. <laughs> it's fucking stupid. It's all fucking stupid. Don't burn a cross. Don't. You're too lazy. You just see him. Just see him. Just see him setting up a cross and then plugging it in. That's just red bulbs going on. You're too lazy to actually burn a cross. It's so too hot. Gonna... It's August in Georgia. It's too hot to burn a cross. So you're just gonna set up. Oh, that's really gonna scare them. Set up a Christmas so like, tree instead. Fucking. 
fucking redneck dumbass white people. She was back at Yaddo by mid-September. Uh, the main mansion had been shut for the winter, so she lived in the West House at this time around. Smaller and easier to heat, I'm guessing. The smaller houses. Probably. Since, you know, they didn't have big... Well, I guess they did have huge furnaces back then. But I would imagine that... It probably cost a shit ton to... Yeah. She was still reworking the manuscript for the novel she owed to Selby at Reinhardt, hoping for an advance to cover a year of rewriting. She warned McKee, quote, I cannot really believe they will want the finished thing. Six days after she arrived at Yaddo, into the West House walked Robert Lowell. Flannery became Lowell's favorite. They spent quite a bit of time together. She would tell him stories of the South and talk about their mutual friend Rob, Robbie McCulley. He soon was writing to Carolyn Gordon, who was teaching at Columbia, quote, There's a girl here named Flannery O'Connor, an admirer of yours, a Catholic and probably a good writer, who was looking for a teaching job. Is there anything at Columbia? She would later tell Gordon that she had fallen for Lowell, and even Edward Maisel said, quote, I lost her to Robert Lowell. Lau's feelings for Flannery were not romantic, but excitement for her Roman Catholicism and her talent. It was at this time at Yaddo that she had decided to do the standard Yaddo thing and, and apply for a Guggenheim Fellowship worth $2,500, which I looked it up, and now it's worth about $43,000. Nice. Yeah. Just after New Year's, Flannery sent the revised first nine chapters of the novel to McKee and to send to John Selby, and Flannery's expectations were true. Selby responded by saying that the manuscript needed more revisions. So she asked Paul Engel for help, who pleaded with her, quote, Send me, please, like a good girl, and whether that designation fits or not, some sense of what the rest of the novel will be about. Flannery wasn't bothered by the rewrites. It was something that she did all the time, even without being told. It was the tone Selby used to tell her about it. Now, there was some animosity in the back and forth between the two, and Selby told her to leave Yaddo for a February meeting to clear the air or to part ways. Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. I absolutely love Kind Bars, and I've eaten a lot of them. Let me tell you about the first time I ever had a Kind Bar. I was working at a steel foundry, and I only had a couple hours left to go, but I was tired and dirty and really starting to drag. So I saw some Kind Bars in our cafeteria, looked good, so I grabbed one, and it was delicious. And it gave me the little burst of energy I needed to get through the rest of my night without feeling bad about my late evening snack or heavy from a ton of refined sugar and artificial ingredients. And that's the big difference. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients and to empower the food snack community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Some of my favorites are the blueberry vanilla cashew, fruit and nut, dark chocolate cherry cashew, cranberry almond, and the dark chocolate nuts and sea salt. They're delicious. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that's why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% off or 15% off for military personnel, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Just go to podgo.co slash kind. That's podgo.co slash kind. Kind Bar. 
creating a kinder and healthier world, one act, one snack at a time. But in the meantime, there was a seasonal change of guests at Yado, and one of these guests was Alfred Kazin, a scout for Robert Goro at Harcourt Brace Publishing. Now he told Goro, quote, No fiction writer after the war seems to me so deep, so severely perfect as Flannery. She would be our classic. I had known that from the day I discovered her stories. So she's making a, a name for herself in certain circles. Good for her. Now, it needs to be remembered that all this was happening at the beginning of the Red Scare in America. Communism, not democratic socialism. There's a difference, you fuckheads. Communism was a fear that was emerging in the minds of Americans more and more, and Yaddo was not immune, particularly Robert Lowell. He claimed that Mrs. Ames was a communist sympathizer. She was good friends with Agnes Smedley, who had accusations thrown at her by General Douglas MacArthur of running a Soviet spy ring out of Shanghai and was a fairly common guest at Yaddo. Smedley was also a huge fan of Mao Zedong and, in the midst of writing a biography of Marshal Zhu Dei, founder of the Chinese Red Army. So it doesn't look great. Now, on February 14th, two FBI agents showed up to the mansion to start questioning the guests, leading to some fleeing from the residence. Because this was a place, now, it, it's not like it's a communist stronghold or something, but this was a place where a lot of younger people who had these social, you know, communist beliefs as far as atheism and taking over the means of production and stuff go, they would go there. A lot of them were avid atheists, and some of them believed some of the, you know, communist uh, propaganda that was out there. And a lot of them fled when, you know, the FBI came around. That didn't look good either. No. Now, Lau, an avid hater of communism, led his own interrogations, getting even quiet Flannery to take part. She didn't even know what communism really was, just that they were all atheists and it was evil. Because <laughs> that's what she was told. Caught up in Lau's mesmerizing personality and being somewhat annoyed with Mrs. Ames' autocratic style, she made a very small testimony in Lau's 60-page transcript, saying that Ames was pleasant, but that they saw little of each other, that she felt like she was more of a personal guest than one of the corporation of Yaddo, and that it seemed to her that Ames and Smedley were living in fear for a long time, and that she had planned to stay longer, but because of unimproved economic pressures, she would be leaving that next Tuesday. Mrs. Ames would invite Flannery back to Yaddo in 1958, but she would decline. This was the end of her time at Yaddo. With Flannery being a person that likes to stick to a certain routine every day, the sudden upswing in activity and controversy that took over the last few days of her residency at Yaddo put the book on hold for a short time. Now, she wrote to Elizabeth McKee, quote, We have been very upset at Yaddo lately, and all the guests are leaving in a group Tuesday. The revolution! All this is very disrupting to the book and has changed my plans entirely. I mean... You didn't know what a place was like, and then you find out that it's something you're against, then... Well, I don't even know if it's... I don't even know if I'd go that far. It was more... 
I think Lal just got everybody up in arms about something that it didn't because, well, what what ends up happening to to Mrs. Ames? You'll see here in a little bit. But I think it was more him getting shit riled up than than anything. Yeah. So she goes ahead and heads to Manhattan. Mm. big city for a small town girl. Yeah, and she moved into the only place she could afford at the time, which was a, quote, horrible YWCA residence. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, She lived a couple places. She lived with a friend for a little bit, and uh, Lowell got her into a hotel, but she ends up at this YWCA place for for just, it's, it's not, she's not there super long. Lull was also there, introducing her to friends and supporters of his Yado crusade. He wasn't done with Yado yet. She was. He was not. Uh, he was in the process of reconver- reconverting to Catholicism, attending Mass with Flannery. Uh, one of the couples that he introduced her to was Robert and Sally Fitzgerald and their two young children. It was an instant connection from their first meeting. She saw them almost as older siblings and would go to them many times for a for advice, and for pre-pre-editorial work. Another one of these milestone, milestone, milestone. It's a, it's not a hot, it's not a hot stone. It's not even a medium stone. It's more of a mild stone. Massage, that would, that would be nice. Another one of these milestone introductions was to Robert Garreau, junior editor at Hardcourt Brace. Now, when Lowell took Flannery to Garo's office, he was instantly convinced of this unusual visitor's literary future. Quote, she was very quiet. She was very charty of words, but she had electric eyes, very penetrating. She could see right through you, so to speak. And I was a young publisher interested in acquiring writers. I thought, this woman is so committed as a writer, she'll do whatever she's made up her mind to do. That's something that I don't have it a whole lot in here, but that's something that everybody talks about when they meet her is her eyes. Apparently she had these deep, piercing blue eyes that even though she's just standing there quiet, not not saying a thing, not really doing anything, she just she would look at you and people would be like, it feels like she's looking into your fucking soul because of these eyes because she had very intense blue eyes i think i think of uh like frank sinatra blue eyes paul hollywood blue eyes (laughs) god those stares from paul hollywood are freaky he should have given her the fucking handshake he deserved it yes she did now problem was guru knew that she was already contracted to john selby at reinhardt and he knew no matter how hard he pressed that she just wasn't the type to go back on an agreement and before she left that day he gave her a copy of the seven story mountain that he published by author thomas merton she was feeling the same interest in working with guru as he was with her so does she go back on her agreement with John Selby at Reinhardt? Do you seem does she seem like the type of person that does no. that? No. In March, Lull, still filled with rage over Yad- the Yado incident and determination to get Flannery canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church for helping him reconvert, left the town for a week to go to a monastery, leaving Flannery alone and giving her a little space. At that time, you're giving me a look. At that time, Flannery had said that Lowell was about three steps from the asylum and was trying to canonize everyone. 
anybody that helped him with anything, he was trying to get them canonized as a saint. And there's some other stories about here about him in here uh, that I don't have in here, but they're fucking weird. He was a weird guy. Yeah, he sounds kind of nuts. Uh, he was the monastery was in the holiest of places, Rhode Island. Quahog, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Uh, but he was much more calm when he returned. However, he was set up for a temporary downfall when the board at Yaddo had a trial to discuss Lyle's accusations against Mrs. Ames, and a counter-petition of support for Ames was signed by 51 former guests, some Lyle's friends, accusing Lyle of, quote, a frame of mind that represents a grave danger both to civil liberties and to the freedom necessary for the arts, and the charges against Ames were dropped. Good for her. I know. Never does come out and say if she actually was a communist sympathizer or not, but it seems like it was a lot of just accusations being thrown around. One of the accusations was from, like, her secretary. But I think I just think it was her personality. She, she was kind of a tyrant. She had this kind of tyrant personality. I think it was more of that because even Lucille Ball got uh, back, got called a communist and a communist sympathizer, and she wasn't. So I think it was just kind of the fervor of the day. I mean, yeah, that's kind of fucked up. Now, in the meantime, Flannery headed back to Georgia to celebrate her twenty-fourth birthday. Got to remember, she's still a super. She's still super young. She's only twenty-four, and she's making these connections with people. Yeah, and it looks like she's kind of getting brainwashed along the way a little bit uh i mean she does go to her college professor and and scream at her about why didn't you tell me about communism everybody was kind of in that mindset of communism is the worst thing in the world then but no i mean with lol oh yeah that's gonna that kind of peters out he ends up getting married and she understands that the relationship was what the relationship was but he had a very he had a very overpowering personality he could kind of get people to believe what he wanted them to believe would have made a good communist i guess so she goes back to georgia 24th birthday and of course regina blasts her with arguments about why she should not go back to manhattan she didn't get the guggenheim grant and money was tight but her friend elizabeth fenwick helped secure her a room in an uptown apartment And she ended up living there for four months in a furnished room in Morningside Heights. Just like in Iowa City, she began each morning by walking to the local church, the Church of the Ascension. I thought of of the Ascension from WWE when I read that. I thought of Coheed and Cambria, Ascension and Descension. No, I thought of of the Church of of Vic and Connor. (laughs) (laughs) It was a mostly Irish parish, which is fitting for her. Quote, there was a church on 107th, and I got to Mass every day, and I was very much left alone, and I liked it. Which sounds great, just going somewhere to be left alone. Yeah, it does. And like always, she spent the bulk of her time in her room writing. In August, she closely followed the reports of the premiere of a new film that was about a larger-than-average ape that gets caught up in human ambition and brought to the U.S. Any idea which movie I'm talking about? Uh, Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe. I thought you were going to say King Kong. Mighty Joe Young. Now, I have a nephew named Joe Young. Joseph. Yeah. That's, yeah, Joseph is long for Joe. 
And nobody calls him Joe. We all call him Joe. But if any of you ever meet my brother, his father, he will swear that Joseph is named after the biblical Joseph. He's a fucking liar. Because <laughs> Mighty Joe Young was his favorite movie. And he named he named his kid after a gorilla. <laughs> he will tell you to the end of the day that he named him after Joseph from the Bible. And he's fucking lying to you. And if you ever meet him, you can tell him to his face that I told you that. <laughs> that his son's named after a giant ape. Now, the publicity campaign had a man in an ape suit greeting customers outside the Criterion Theater in Times Square. This whole experience, the movie and the campaign, was the inspiration that led Flannery to have her character Enoch watch a film about a baboon named Lonnie who rescues attractive children from a burning orphanages, a burning orphanage, and eventually ends up in an ape suit himself. <laughs> okay. It was like near the near the end of the story, he. He like he's have he's Enoch's kind of fucked up, and he he so he jumps in this the back of this like van where there was a guy in a in an ape costume. He jumps in and closes the door, and you don't know what happens until a figure comes out with a black eye, carrying something, and he runs out into the woods and he buries his clothes and he puts on the ape costume and he runs off into the woods smiling the whole time like that that like that's like the last time you see him so you just um, you just have to assume that he spends the rest of his life in that ape costume running around the woods i wonder if that's like enoch from the shield (laughs) no (laughs) but i imagine that's where all these uh all the uh bigfoot sightings are coming from probably now flannery never really cared for manhattan in all honesty as she complained of the quote cultural fog and its fornication and the hay fever season and high pollen count. So when, Fitz, when the Fitzgeralds offered her to stay in their new Connecticut house as a paying guest, she jumped at the chance. The arrangement was that she would pay $65 a month and babysit one hour each afternoon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just like everywhere else she, she stayed, she started every morning by going to Mass, this time with either one of the Fitzgeralds. Then Flannery would boil an egg for breakfast talk with the family until Robert left for work at Sarah Lawrence College. Then she would head to her room for the maximum four hours of writing that she could, that's all she could really handle. Then around noon, she would reappear with a daily letter to her mother, walk half a mile to the mailbox, and then babysit Ugetta, the eldest daughter, in her room. Ugetta. Ugetta. Okay. And Ugetta, and Ugetta. <laughs> That's not where I thought you were going to go with it, but that works. Now, in the evening after the kids were in bed, the three would mix a pitcher of martinis, share a meal, gossip about Robert's co-workers, and discuss books, mostly Catholic writers. It was a pretty great life she had going for a while, and by all accounts, she was very happy. She bonded with Robert over the mutual loss of their fathers, both at age 15, and Sally was like the always pregnant sister she never had. Sally was always pregnant. Wow. She was Catherine Dickens, without a dick for a for a husband. <laughs> uh, all while making real steady, albeit slow, progress on the novel. Now she returned to Milledgeville in December, which she normally does for a visit, and while there, fell seriously ill, and she was told she would need to be hospitalized for a floating kidney, or as she put it to friends, quote. 
I won't see you again as I have to go to the hospital Friday and have a kidney hung on a rib. <laughs> okay. So in January, she was admitted for a month to the Baldwin Memorial Hospital. It was apparently called a Deedles crisis and is very painful and can cause kinking and obstruction of the ureter, and surgery is often needed. Now, my oldest son has a pelvic kidney where it was formed and then migrated. It, your kidneys start at one spot, and then they migrate um, to the back. One of his migrated, and the other one kind of stayed where it was. So he's got a pelvic kidney, but this isn't the same thing. This one, this is the, the kidney actually detaches from what it's, what's holding it in place, and then everything gets kind of bound up. It sounds very painful. It does. Because, I mean, if a kidney stone hurts like shit. You can imagine what this was probably like. So she spent all of February recuperating at the Klein Mansion, not getting any work on the book done. But near the end of March, she had enough strength to head back to Connecticut. And in May, Sally gave birth to their third child, and Flannery was made the godmother, making her, as they saw it, an official member of the family. Aww. Uh, and it says it says in there, uh, the funniest and coolest one of all of them. But if Flannery O'Connor is the funniest, the coolest person in your family, you I don't know what to say about your family. Yeah. Uh, she was able to get back to work on the novel as the weather warmed and came up with a radio preacher named Hoover Schultz. But then she re reached an impasse with the main character, Hayes. She ended up reading Robert's copy of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, seeing that Oedipus blinded himself in recognition of his sins. She had Hayes sear his own eyes with quicklime. And remembering the women saints, Catherine of Siena, Catherine of Genoa, and Teresa of Avila, she added some more medieval touches, like lining Hayes' shoes with broken glass and wearing a shirt of barbed wire. Damn. Yeah. Like, how much punishment do you want to give? He gives it to himself. It's like that, that class of Catholics from, um, uh, what is that? The... Uh, Da Vinci Code. Did you ever see the Da Vinci Code? No. Well, there's one of the like priests or, or monk or whatever who takes the whips with the razors on the end of him and he whips himself every day in recognition of his sins. It's the same thing. Except without whipping himself, he's wearing barbed wire and putting glass in his shoes. Fuck. Yeah. Then in December, she, yeah, yeah I told you, she's kind of weird. <laughs> then in December, she started to complain of heaviness in her arms. She played it off to just be aches from retyping her entire novel to set up Hayes' self-harm. She hadn't been very sick. She hadn't been a very sickly kid other than the usual shit. But the more she looked back, the more she realized that even before the Deedles crisis in Manhattan and in Yaddo, she had, quote, ran from one end of it to the other looking for an honest doctor. Then the condition worsened and she feared that it might be something contagious. Fearing for the Fitzgeralds and their children, she got Sally to take her to Dr. Leonard Maidman, who was Fit the Fitzgerald's family doctor, and he diagnosed her with... Carpal tunnel? Rheumatoid arthritis. Carpal tunnel. Everybody has rheumatoid arthritis. Now, she always went home for the holidays, so she was headed that way anyway, so he recommended that she get a complete physical at her hospital in Milledgeville. And when it came time for Flannery to leave, Sally noticed a stiffness in her gait at the train station that had not been there before. 
She got extremely ill on the train ride home, and when her uncle Louis picked her up, he said she remember, resembled, quote, a shriveled old woman. She's 24, almost 25. A few nights later, Regina called Robert and Sally to tell them the horrible news. News that she didn't tell Flannery. Now let's get to this train ride for just a second. Uh, it was enough of a traumatic experience that it would show up again in her writings. In The Enduring Chill, the main character gets very ill on the train from New York. He's also 25, suffering from some mysterious illness. And he has to stuff the New York Times inside his blanket to stay warm in his apartment, something Robert Fitzgerald said that Flannery did at their house, but she'd stuff it in the cracks of her windows. So she takes the whole New York Times thing and uses it. Not quite the same way, but okay. still. December 23rd, she wrote to Betty Boyd Love. Remember old Betty from uh, GC, GSCW? Mm, vaguely. Vaguely. It's only been a week. Quote, I am languishing on my, bill, my bed of self-affliction. This time with, and the way she, I'm going to say it the way she spelled it, arthritis. She spells it with a W. <laughs> Or, to give it all it has, the acute rheumatoid arthritis, what leaves you always willing to sit down, lie down, lie down flatter, etc. I will be in Milledgeville, Georgia, a bird sanctuary, for a few months, waiting to see how much of an invalid I'm going to get to be. But I don't believe in time no more, so it's all one to me. Milledgeville, Georgia, a bird, a bird sanctuary. sanctuary. Her doctor was Dr. Charles Fulgham, the... Possible inspiration for Dr. Block from The Enduring Chill. Now, Dr. Fulgham agreed at the moment with Dr. Maidman about the arthritis and started administering cortisone. Flannery informed Elizabeth McKee that she was taking a new treatment and that she was getting better. Unfortunately, the improvement in her condition was short-lived. The cortisone kept her alive, but had an ever rise, but she had an ever rising fever. Now, Fulgham called Dr. Arthur J. Merrill, Georgia's first kidney specialist and internist in Atlanta, and over the phone they came to the most possible conclusion that Mary Flannery O'Connor, at the age of 25, was dying slowly of disseminated lupus erythematous. So lupus the same thing that took her dad she had lupus she was transferred to emory university hospital in atlanta tests confirmed the diagnosis of lupus but regina told the doctors not to tell flannery fearing it would be too much for her to handle so she's still on the impression that she has arthritis now, lupus has a nasty way of going from flare-up to remission with no real rhyme or reason. As Flannery wrote to Robert Lowell, quote, It comes and it goes. When it comes, I retire. When it goes, I venture forth. Since the disease could compromise joints, blood vessels, lungs, kidneys, heart, or brain, its diagnosis involved identifying at least two to four items on a checklist of nearly a dozen symptoms, including rashes, high fevers, photosensitivity, or oral ulcers, hematological disorders, and arthritis. Suffering from a severe case, Flannery manifested a number of these symptoms during her Great Flare of 1951. 
The life-saving treatment Dr. Merrill, pres Merrill prescribed was a high dosage of ACTH, or adrenocorticotropic hormone. Cortisone. Yeah, I had to get ACTH testing because when they were giving me the cortisone shots, it fucked with my ACTH levels. <clears throat> well, we're going to get to that. Now, this is derived from the pituitary glands of pigs. Did you know that? No. Well, there you go. But I, I knew that the cortisone shots fucks with your pituitary glands and your other... other. Yeah, we're going to get to that here in a second. She would eventually sing the praises of these natural of this natural hormone. Quote, I owe my existence and cheerful countenance to the pituitary glands of thousands of pigs butchered daily in Chicago, Illinois at their moor packing plant. If pigs were, gar pigs were garments, I wouldn't be worthy to kiss the hems of them. Oh, poor, poor piggies. Now, along with high dosages of ACTH comes a variety of side effects, including a round moon-shaped face, increased risk of infections, especially with common bacterial and viral and fungal microorganisms, thinning bones and fractures, suppressed adrenal gland hormone production that may result in a variety of signs and symptoms, including severe fatigue, loss mm -hmm. of appetite, nausea, and muscle weakness, Problems with mood swings, memory, behavior, and other psychological effects, such as confusions or delirium. Now, psychiatrist and O'Connor scholar Robert Coles said, quote, One gets stirred by cortisone. I don't want to turn this into a federal case or an interpretation of her writing, but the drug that was saving her life was also, to some extent, stirring her body and mind. I guess you could say that all this cortisone could have a could point to a reason to why some of her stories were so kind of out there. Okay. Her hair began to fall out from the fevers. Her face was bloated and moon-shaped, and she was no longer able to just shut her mind off, telling her friend Betty Hester, who we haven't met yet, quote, Cortisone makes you think night and day until I suppose the mind dies of exhaustion if you are not rescued. So what do you do when you're sitting in a hospital trying not to die? Well, you work on your novel, of course. And when she was finally released and put on a strict salt-free, milk-free diet and taught to give herself four daily shots of ACTH, she was ready to send in her manuscript. Reinhardt had officially declined to publish the thing, so she sent it off to Robert Garreau on March 10th. And after months of blood tests and transfusions, she had finally decided on a name, Wise Blood. Nice. Now, Flannery would have loved to go back to Connecticut, but with her condition, it was just not going to be possible at the time. So she and Regina moved back out to Andalusia in the spring of 1951. It gave her more privacy and less stairs to take than the Klein Mansion. Now, the real difficult part began. Being a full-grown adult woman and having to go back to living with and depending on your sometimes tyrant-like mother. I've been there. <laughs> I've been there too, but my mom's not a tyrant. My mom is actually very sweet. She is. So it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a little bit of a deal. <laughs> Now, meanwhile, the novel was in starts and stops in the publication process, as 
it does. Uh, Flannery, never, never fully satisfied, continued to rewrite and rework the story even after she sent it in. And by April, she was getting anxious to see her book put out. Finally, in June, she got word that Wise Blood had been accepted for publication, although there were a few suggested, suggested additions and corrections they wanted to make. So she sent the manuscript to the Fitzgeralds, who sent it to Caroline Gordon, who herself found some things to change. Gordon ended up typing out nine, a nine-page single-space list of suggested edits to send into Flannery. Nine pages single space of edits for her book that she already wrote, rewrote for six years and is only like 200 something pages long. God damn. Yeah. a wise blood took six years to write mostly because she was learning on the job. So in the fall of 1951, she took every suggestion or order from Gordon and made the changes. The much more experienced writer gave her. Like changing the color of a tie from green peaish to the color of green peas. She wanted, Gordon told her that the, the, the speaker, the narrator, the first person in it, should have a certain dialect, a certain speech pattern. And green peaish doesn't fit in with it, but the color of green peas does. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It was Jeffersonian. I don't remember what they said. That's that's why. Uh, Wise Blood was finally published May 15th, 1952. 3,000 copies for $3 a piece. So it wasn't... It didn't blow up. Find out why here in a second. Carolyn Gordon was printed on the inside flap comparing Flannery to Kafka. And when Regina told Flannery she didn't know who that was, Flannery told her that he was a German Jew and he wrote a book about a man that turns into a roach. And Regina said, quote, well, I can't tell people that. He turned into a beetle, not a roach. I understand that, but she said roach. So that's the quote, and I have to keep the quote. Now, reaction to the book was mixed, especially since it came out. And here's probably why it, it didn't get as big as it could have. Came out the same year as Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, Steinbeck's East of Eden, and Ellison's Invisible Man. Nice. That's like coming out the same year. That's like UHF from from Weird Al that came out the same year as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Back to the Future, and Batman. It's like it's hard to compete with that shit. Yeah. But Metamorphosis is a great book. Yeah, but Regina had never read it. She's not going to go around telling people, it's like, oh, well, people are comparing her to some guy who wrote a book about a guy who turns into a bug. But it was a fantastic but Regina's book. Not, but Regina doesn't care. She's not going to read that shit. Now, a uh, family reaction was even worse. Cousin Katie bought copies and mailed them to her friends, including the priest in Savannah, before reading it. So she didn't realize what it was about until after the priest. The, all, and it was a few priests that got it. The priest in Savannah was one of them. There's a couple of priests in there that got this book that um, was a satire pretty much on Catholicism. the religion. Yeah. Uh, didn't go over well. Some of the Milledgeville townspeople said they circulated the book around in around town in brown paper bags so nobody could see what they were. <laughs> uh, her her um her old teacher Catherine Scott said that when she read it she got about halfway through it and then threw it across the room. And somebody else told her that uh oh no I think it might have still been Catherine Scott told her that 
if the character that dies at the end of the novel would have died at the beginning, it would have been better for everybody. Damn. But that's kind of the book. I mean, uh, and one local doctor said, quote, I enjoyed it, but I know one thing. She don't know a damn thing about a whorehouse. But she doesn't. No, she's she probably should have gone in one. She would know. A good Catholic girl? She's not going to go into a whorehouse. Uh, in June, she finally got back to the Fitzgerald's home after a year and a half. She smuggled three baby ducks on the plane from Georgia for their kids. And they had decided, with the ever-growing family, four children now, that they needed some help. So they took in Maria Ivankic, an old sheep herdess from Yugoslavia, who had became a displaced person because of World War II. Also, through the Fresh Air Fund, they took in Mary Loretta Washington, a 12-year-old African-American girl from the slums of New York City, to give her, uh, get her out of the city and kind of give her some room to you know, run around and enjoy herself. Yeah. Washington and Ivankic did not get along. They said that um, Maria Ivankic had never seen a black person before. So this 12-year-old little black girl was the first one that she saw, and she did not like her. Oh, my gosh. Flannery had no real problem with either one, although she did say that Mary Loretta was rowdy and poorly behaved, which Sally didn't believe because Mary, apparently she was a very shy child and would do nothing other than just kind of sit there and pet the kids on the head. you know. So she didn't believe that for a second. Could have been Mary's bias coming out. Probably. Now, after a few weeks into the visit, driving to do errands, Sally began to feel the pull, the needing to tell Flannery the great secret that they had been keeping. She found the opportunity when Flannery started speaking of her arthritis. Sally jumped in, quote, Flannery, you don't have arthritis. You have lupus. That's one way to tell somebody. To which Flannery responded with, after a few seconds of horrible silence, quote, well, that's not good news. <laughs> but she thanked Sally for telling her. That's what she thought she had had all along, and now she knew she wasn't crazy. But she told Sally not to tell Regina that she had told Flannery. Otherwise, Regina would never tell Sally anything ever again. And Flannery, quote, might want to know something else sometime. <laughs> Her six-week visit was cut short. Sally was, again, pregnant with their fifth child and had become very ill. Like, she was on the verge of miscarriage. Oh, Yeah. Flannery had also caught a virus. So she got the neighbor to come take care of Sally as she made arrangements to go back to Georgia. She took Loretta, Mary Loretta, with her on the train to New York where she would be handed off to her mother, bribing her with candy and a dollar to behave on the train on the ride there. Then she flew back home where there was a doctor's appointment waiting for her. The virus had reactivated her lupus and her ACTH would have to be increased to a full CC a day. She didn't know much. She didn't know how much time she had left. So she asked for Sally to send the rest of her things to her home. But that wasn't the only package she was waiting on. That's not a sexual innuendo. She's actually raiding on a package. A crate from Eustace, Florida. You know where Eustace is? Uh, I don't don't know. Well, you lived in Florida, I'm asking. Florida's a big state. It's not that big. 
I'm just asking because you've you've surprised me with some of the places that you've known before. Like when we were talking about Hunter S. Thompson, you said that you knew a couple of the places that he had been in Florida. So I'm just asking if you knew where Eustace, Florida was. No, but no? it sounds familiar. But okay. no, I don't think I've been there. Okay, well, a crate from there was on its way. When Regina and Flannery pulled up to the train station to get said crate, Flannery hurried to the platform to greet the long, royal blue necks and crested heads of her first family of peacocks. Two adults and four seven-week-old pee-bitties. Aww. Pee-bitties. Pee-bitties. Now, at the same time she was meeting her new birds, she was working on her first piece of work since the novel, A Late Encounter with the Enemy, which we talked about a little bit when we talked about the Gone with the Wind premiere. Yes. Now, based on the Milledgeville Union Recorder article about a Confederate general's appearance at the graduation of his much younger wife, in Flannery's tall tale, General Tennessee Flintrock Sash dies of a stroke following his granddaughter's graduation. His corpse is then wheeled to a Coca-Cola machine by a clueless Boy Scout, where it just sits there. Now, this, this goes in, again. She gets the idea both from the Gone with the Wind premiere, from this just article that's in the Union Recorder about a a Confederate general going to his wife's graduation, and the fact that Coca-Cola was a big sponsor of the Boy Scouts in this area then, and she saw that in the paper too, so she threw Coca-Cola and Boy Scouts in there too. But apparently they just he just the boy scout just wheels the corpse over to the Coca Cola machine thinking that he's just asleep and just leaves him there and he just sits there for a while. That's oh. people people come and go, different things happen, but that's the basis of the story. Wow. Yeah. Now her agent sent it to Harper's Bazaar in August and it appeared in September. Then in October she sent in The Life You Save May Be Your Own, where she used names straight out of the phone book. Like, literally, straight out of the phone book, and she just used their name. Okay. It was about a widow and her nearly 30-year-old mute, almost blind daughter, both of them named Lucille, Lucy Nell Crater, and a one-armed handyman, Tom T. Shiflet. It was her first treatment of the mother-daughter relationship. Hmm. Again, she's living with her mom now, so that's she writes about what she knows. What she knows, what's going on. In December, she learned that she had won a $2,000 Kenyan Review Fiction Fellowship by its editor, John Crow Ransom, who we had talked about when she was at Iowa Univers- uh, University of Iowa, followed by the p- publication of The Life You Save in the spring 1953 issue. It went on to win the second prize in the 1954 O. Henry Award. But before that would happen, she would meet a young Danish Bible salesman that might just be the one or the one to break her heart on the third and final episode of Flannery O'Connor. Ooh, getting kind of hot there. You think he, you think she, he's the one or you think he breaks her heart? I think she dies single. Yeah, he breaks her heart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Way to ruin it for everybody. Spoiler alert. You want to give out our socials real quick? My Twitter and Instagram. We are at open a f n a. Wait, we are at open a f i n g book. I am at e c j b a t. 
Kevin is on Twitter at YoungETAM6, and he is on Instagram at YoungETAM. Very good. You can email us, openaffingbook at gmail.com. If there's any authors or books you want us to cover or you just want to say hi or tell us how we're doing, we appreciate it. Stephanie, ours and yours, a Goodreads. Goodreads.com slash open a fucking book. And no, good- open a effing book. Open a F-I-N-G book. There you go. And Goodreads.com slash E-C-J-B-A-T. All right. Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash book. We have plenty of stickers. I think I might try to look into getting buttons that say, I got biscuit. I've got I've biscuits. I've got the biscuits. I was going to say, I've got the biscuits. But, she didn't, but, you did, but the first time you did it, you didn't say the. You just said, I've got biscuits. Because I didn't read it right. But you she, didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. That's the whole thing. It wasn't no, even close. No, when I, when I read it, but it, it's, the whole first, I've got the biscuits. No, the whole first time you walked around, the whole first week you walked around going, you're going, I've got biscuits. But it's, I've got the biscuits. Okay. I've got the biscuits. Okay, if you say so. All your donations to Patreon go towards making this show just even better fucking better than than this. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe you can buy me some more edibles. <laughs> Is that what you need? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Come back for our uh weekday cliff notes shows. Come out Wednesday night, Thursdays where we will discuss four books of the week. Whatever books Stephanie has seen that piques her fancy, any big book news that's coming up, and generally shoot the shit for half an hour or so. The fuck was that? I'm shooting shit. <laughs> You're shooting shit. Rate and review us, please. Please tell everybody uh, about sh- us, about Stephanie shooting shit. Pew pew. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you can listen to podcasts, rate, review, subscribe, follow. That helps us out. Go to your local <laughs> library, volunteer if you can. Go to your local uh, bookstore, buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore. Best thing you can do to help them right now. And uh, I think that's it. I do too. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and time, we get to talk to you again. Do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys. Tuna clip. <laughs>